Welcome to Bound for Justice, your weekly podcast that explores race, reconciliation, and social justice, one book at a time. Join us for a candid discussion about taking steps to create change in our lives and the communities we live in. And now your hosts, Rachel Rosman and Charlotte Wilson. Okay, so um, we're back for another week of the podcast, and we're going to do something a little bit different this week. As you guys know, we've been focusing on, and we'll continue for the most part, to focus on books that we've read related to issues around race, racial reconciliation, and diversity. But this week, we're taking a slight diversion, and we're actually going to discuss a talk that Rachel and I both had an opportunity to listen to. Dr. Bernice King, who is the youngest daughter of uh, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., she actually spoke at a congregation of a local church here in Columbus, Ohio. And then Rachel and I had both had an opportunity to listen to a recording of that interview, and it was just a really great conversation. And we felt like there were just a lot of really good nuggets of good nuggets of truth, some some really good things that were discussed in that talk and uh, definitely merited a conversation here on the podcast this week. So we're going to take a slight diversion from our normal way of doing things uh, to talk about that, that talk. So as I mentioned, Dr. Bernice King actually came to a church here in Columbus, Ohio. She um, was part of an event at Rock City Church. Their main location is in Hilliard, Ohio, and they also have several other locations um, throughout the city of Columbus where they simulcast their church services. Uh, my sister's family, they actually attend there regularly. And so she told me that Dr. Bernice King was going to be speaking there. She was actually a featured speaker that was part of a, a series that they were doing at their church, a sermon series titled Love Like You've Never Been Hurt. And the entire series is really focused on forgiveness, really from a Christian perspective. And so they chose to address the issue of race relations within that podcast or within that series, that church series as well. And part of that included bringing Dr. Bernice King to their church and the senior pastor of Rock City Church interviewed Dr. King. So so that happened a few weeks ago, and the recording is actually online. We'll be sure to include that in the show notes so that you guys can check that out yourselves and listen to the entire interview. But for those of you who don't know, as I mentioned, Bernice King, she's the, the youngest daughter of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King. She was only five years old when her father was uh, assassinated. So, you know, and even during the talk, she talks a lot about the fact that she she has a few small memories of her father, but she doesn't really have a lot, you know, having only been five years old when he passed away. But she she talks a lot about his legacy during the talk that she, that she was a part of here at Rock City Church. So, Rachel, I know you and I both had a chance to, to listen to the recording. And, you know, we both we discussed, you know, a couple of the big takeaways that or the big themes that really stuck out to us or struck us during her conversation. I, I know for me, my one big takeaway, even just watching the recording of the interview with Dr. King, it, for me, it was very emotional. I felt like there was so much that she said that resonated with me personally. And I think, you know, a lot of it comes from the fact that she's been doing this work for a really long time. A lot of it comes from the fact that she's an immensely smart woman and incredibly well-spoken. Um, I have to tell you, I felt very inspired listening to her talk. She was so amazingly eloquent and mm -hmm. just so intelligent. And I just really felt 
myself aspiring to be more like Dr. King, which I thought was awesome. Um, I just, I really didn't, I honestly didn't really know a lot about her as a person. And so I, I, I really, um, I value just kind of getting to know who she was and understanding um, all the work that she's been doing for the last few years. What were your thoughts on? I, I thought so too. I mean, I thought that the way she would respond to questions and and everything was just seemed so well thought out when she answered and she was very smooth with how she spoke. And I thought it was really great because I usually can't come up with all the right words and and answer questions so effectively, I guess. Yeah. She always would figure out what the question was. I, I read a book about um, that Malcolm X's daughter had written and they she mentioned how there's so much pressure on kids of these big like preachers or people mm-hmm. who were public speakers. Like maybe their kids aren't really good public speakers and mm-hmm. they don't want that life, but they're kind of brought into it. They're brought into it you know, whether or not they wanted to. And I thought that she did an amazing job regardless. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this was a job that she would have been meant for re- yeah. regardless of what her life or history would have. Well, it's up. interesting that you bring that up because she talks about that in the talk. She talks about the fact that she kind of tried to run from this for a little bit. I think she felt, I think she knew early on, probably in her late teens, early twenties, that there was something more for her and something that she was destined to do that was greater. And she kind of avoided it for a few years. And I think it finally... I mean, it finally caught up with her and she realized like, no, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And she sort of yielded to that and um, accepted that this was this was something she was meant to do. Right. And that is that would be different. <clears throat> I mean, when your parent is larger than life. Yeah. Like, how do you how do you measure up to that? Right. Right. How do you? Well, and it was funny, too, because I I going into the conversation, I really did have this idea of I Bernice King, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s youngest daughter. And I felt like I walked away from that conversation, seeing Bernice King in her own light as her own person, um, just bringing forth like just some amazing, amazing awesomeness and thought leadership when it comes to race relations and specifically race relations when it comes to being a person of faith. I mean, she's an ordained Christian minister. She's very clear about that. And a lot of, and obviously this was, this was in a church environment. So a lot of what she was talking about was race relations as it pertains to a person who espouses to be a Christian. Yes. And I think that that was something I, I wasn't expecting when I started it. I thought it was going to be much more uh, Martin Luther King Jr. focused. And it, it wasn't, it was like they brought up at the beginning, almost like as her biography, (laughs) this is Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter. And then it just kind of goes from she talks a little bit about that and then she sort of goes into her own life which I really thought was I thought it maybe related it to us more mm-hmm. like okay this isn't something that was happening in the 60s or anything this is right now what she's doing what we can do um, this isn't her looking back at the past this is in the present yeah where are we yeah I mean it was definitely very action focused it was very I, I agree with you it was very much focused on who who we are today and what what we should be Although there was one thing that she did mention about sort of the sort of laying the groundwork for, you know, starting from, you know, the context of being Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter. She made a point, you know, right from the outset that when her father was assassinated at the time of his death, he was considered one of the most hated men in America. And she made a point of saying, and you contrast that with today where Martin Luther King Jr. is revered as as being, you know, an, an amazing, well-loved, well-revered civil rights leader, not only in the United States, but around the world. And she really paid homage to the work that her mother did to keep 
his story alive and to make his image, to turn his image into what it is today and to what we see in terms of his legacy. Yeah, I think that that's a, they have that comment, like behind every strong man is a stronger woman or a very strong woman. And I think that really, she really drove that point home that, you know, her dad did this great stuff, but he wasn't somebody that was really admired necessarily at the time by everybody. Mm-hmm. Whereas now everybody's pulling out their Martin Luther King Jr. quotes and right. and comments and acting like he's always been this great man that everybody just revered. And that was not the case. His Mm-mm. image was, I mean, even her image of him was created essentially by her mother since she was so young when her father passed. Right which I found it interesting. Yeah, I mean, I really appreciated the fact that she made a point of recognizing the hard, hard work and sacrifices that her mom made in order to keep this legacy alive. And I think also having the recognition that the legacy of her father was so much bigger than who her father really was as a person. It's become, it's not just, I mean, he was a human being. And she makes a point of also saying he was a man of faith. He was a preacher first, civil rights leader second. But what we see today through the hard work of Credit Scott King, I think, is something, it is truly the dream um, that I think holds a lot of us still together and keeps us pushing forward in the face of adversity. And do you think there's, like, recently there's been this resurgence of this Black girl magic, um, mm-hmm. and this the view of Black women has been really pushed as being more of a positive mm-hmm. um, image, because I think for so long it was kind of underplayed. And I think that with this, it's a big thing. Like these are all these amazing black women that have just been kind of cast aside in society in the past or in the history, mm-hmm. because I mean, everybody always knew Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and all these amazing things, but you know, Coretta Scott King was just his wife, and and really, she was this big. I mean, I think that in the in the talk, Bernice King mentions that her mother was actually more of the civil rights person. Coretta Scott King was more of an activist than her father was, but he sort of took it and was the man. So we recognize all of that. Whereas her mother was more intelligent than what we'd given her credit for. And a, a, a strong, strong influence. Yes. And like a strong black female. Yes. That never was really recognized. So one of the other big things that Dr. King talks about, you know, she, she was very open and incredibly vulnerable in sharing her own personal story. And she talked a lot about the hate and the anger that she carried around for many, many years. She talks about the hate and the anger that she had towards white men. She talks about the hate and the anger that she had towards, you know, having lost her father at such a young age and how that really changed her family. The fact that her father was gone and her mom, you know, had to take on this work of keeping his legacy alive and pushing forward with the civil rights movement. And how, you know, that sort of she, how she, she carried that anger forward with her for a long, long time. One thing that struck me when she was talking about, you know, carrying that hate and that anger, she shared the story of being on a television show with James Robeson, who is a well-known Christian preacher. And she was, you know, just, I think she was just sharing. And I think it was like midway through the interview, he actually asked her if he could give her a hug. And she relayed how she was feeling at that time where her her natural human response and all the anger that she was carrying around with her was, no, I don't want this white man hugging me because that's how she was feeling. That was the anger that she had. Her, you know, her real, you know, typical human anger 
in response to all that she's had to deal with in her life. She just talked about that moment being a place where she actually did allow that and it actually changed her and it and it changed her perspective on, you know, what it means to carry around the anger and letting some of that go so that she, that doesn't turn into a poison in your life. Yeah, I have you ever had instances like that where you've had like a certain type of person or a specific person where you've, like if you were wronged by a person who has a certain a, a look or appearance about mm-hmm. them, and then you hold that against everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like that very much with, with certain, certain people. Yeah. Um, but so I can, I see that. And the people that I'm against didn't kill my father. Mm-hmm. So I imagine that that burden would be incredible. I mean, that's, that's quite a bit of forgiveness. And I think especially with now in society, when you hear people making different comments that are racially charged mm-hmm. and just being like, yeah, I can forgive this person or I can move on. I can, I can love this person. Or I'm not going to hold that against. I think, I mean, that's a big step. I thought. Right. And I, and I do think that that's an interesting idea of the, the difference between allowing yourself to forgive and allowing yourself not to be consumed by that hate, not allowing that hate to become a poison in your life. But also understanding that you that it that it's okay to hold people accountable too, and that it's not one and the same. That mm-hmm. you can you can forgive, you can say I'm not going to let that be a poison to me as an individual, but you're still accountable for your actions. You're accountable for your decisions and the things that you say and do. Right, and I use that a lot with my daughter. Like if yeah. there are issues with you know you can't let this eat away at you because now that person is now they've done this to you and they're controlling your life now. Like how mm-hmm. much time are you going to give this person, or how much how much energy are you going to give this? But I think that she more took it as a she took that energy and turned it into action, right? And how she was going to react accordingly. Agreed. Yeah, because we talked about how how she had gone into her own ministry, and she after I think one of the parts that you enjoyed or like to hear about were how she was, how she kind of was against the idea of being a, we talked about earlier. About being a minister. Minister. Yeah. And she was really kind of fighting that. And then she went through this moment of, she was going to be more like Jesus and how she would, how she would portray herself and how she would react to events or to people as it, as Jesus would. And she even mentioned how she fought that. Like, I don't want to be Jesus right now. I want to be Bernice right now and react the way Bernice would. And, but I think I thought that that struck me during the talk as being almost uncomfortable for me to listen to mm-hmm. because I think I sometimes am like, well, I'm going to act like this because I'm not Jesus. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's a burden that Jesus can bear. And, and he was crucified for this and um, like Jesus was crucified so that I could, you know, be petty. <laughs> and so I felt that when she thought that she wanted to be more like Jesus, I thought, man, that's. That's deep. That's that's, that's intense. Um, and it was funny what she said, though. She said, be careful. Be careful, too, when you say you want to be more like Jesus because, you you know, make sure you know what you're getting yourself right. into. Right, yeah. which is exactly why I never said that. <laughs> I'm, I uh, I don't think I could I could handle that. So the other thing that I really appreciated about the talk in general is I felt like it was very action-focused. You mentioned the fact that she made it very relevant and very focused on us today and you know, the current world that we're living in. But I also felt like she she offered a lot of invitations to folks to take action or to do things that get us closer to understanding one another and connecting with each other across, you know, racial and cultural differences. 
And she mentioned at one part, I, I invite you to experience black culture. It isn't what you think. So then I thought, well, what do we think? Mm-hmm. What do we think black culture really is? I guess, how do you feel that black culture is viewed? Well, I, I guess I felt like what she was saying is I invite you to perhaps, you know, walk into a world where you don't feel 100% comfortable or where you might be, you know, for a lot of, I mean, let's just be honest, the congregation that she was speaking to was majority white. I mean, this is, I mean, she was in a white suburb in Columbus, Ohio. Okay, folks. So you, you get that she was, you know, she was talking to the Midwestern white folk Mm -hmm. who, you know, aren't necessarily rubbing shoulders with a lot of people of color and, you know, might not necessarily feel a hundred percent comfortable in, you know, in quote unquote black culture and might carry with them only the stereotypes and the generalities that they see on TV. Now, when we were talking about how it feels, when you said how it feels to not be, would you say the, the majority? Yeah, I mean, to- yeah, you're you're in the minority. I've had this <clears throat> conversation with somebody before. I forget who it was. I'm sure, sure it was a wonderful person. But we were talking about how I go to a lot of HBCU events. Mm-hmm. And I'd made a joke one time that I didn't feel badly. A friend of mine said, were you the only white person there? And I said, I guess, I was like, I, I guess, I think I was the only white person there. But it didn't bother me as much as being the only person who hadn't gone to an HBCU that was there. And so I'd kind of talked to somebody else about it. And I said, you know, whenever I'm the only white person in a room with everyone who is black, I don't notice it as mm. much. Like it, it, it doesn't occur to me. And that person said, because you're still white, like you still are the dominant culture. Mm. So no matter what, you've got that comfort with you that, you know, this is just this little event that I'm at right now. But I still, when I leave here, I'm still going to be kind of in that yeah. life. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. I always just attributed it to be like, I don't know, I guess everybody here is just nicer. I'm just in a better group. Well, I, I mean, I, I guess that's a fair perspective. I would I would argue, too, though, that you, you know, kind of what Dr. King was saying was I invite you to be a little bit uncomfortable. I invite you to kind of work outside of your standard social circle and your standard way of doing things and the people that you're normally with. You know, I think when you're when you're when you're a black person, depending on the world that you live in and or the the circles that you I mean, in, in my world, I'm with mostly white people all day long. That's that is the world that I'm working in. So you kind of get used to it. And I have a similar experience where sometimes I was in a meeting. I swear <laughs> I was in a meeting last week. Um, it wasn't at work. It was a it was a professional event. And I'm sitting there in the room. And I looked around the room and all of a sudden it occurred to me, I'm like, I think I'm like the only black person in the entire room, which happens a lot. Sometimes you just get so used to it. And I just wonder, is it just because you've, because you've purposely put yourself into those situations that it's, it's become a little bit more uncomfortable? I I think so. Another point, since you know me, you'll kind of understand this, but I was talking to somebody yesterday, a coworker, because I'm helping out with this kind of project at school. And I said, you know, some people weren't sure if it would be well-received because I am white and it would be for a majority of black individuals. And I said, I don't think I notice it as much when I'm the only white person in a room because I'm equally socially awkward around all white people (laughs) or around all black people. Yeah, I get that too. (laughs) Like I'm always awkward, so it doesn't matter. Put me wherever you want. I'm going to say something weird. And the person I was talking to was oddly 
like not a close friend and was like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I was like, oh, thanks for agreeing. <laughs> right. Yeah. You didn't have to agree so quickly. But everybody should have their people, their their world that they feel comfortable in. Now, last I hope you year, do. I have people that I'm yeah. Yeah. I mean, equally socially awkward, equally comfortable, whatever. You know, <laughs> just go with it. I did have an event that I went to. It was a basketball game. And I had gone two years in a row and I was kind of making the comparison from one year. I went in and it was fantastic and everybody was great. And it was an HBC rivalry rivalry game. And so I was a minority going there, a minority in the crowd. I had, I made friends with people. Everybody was around me. You know, I was sitting in the wrong area. So I was with the opposing team's fans and they're good. And then other people from the team I was cheering for was there and or they were there and, you know, everybody's really welcoming. The next year I went and it wasn't like that at all. Like a couple of people kind of like purposely nudged me. And I had, I sat with people who were very great also, but it just wasn't that same feeling. And I had talked to somebody else about it. And he's like, well, what did you expect? Did you want like, there's a white person here. Let's roll out the red carpet for Rachel. You know, she made it in here. You know, everybody be, be good. There's a white person here. And I, I said, no, it wasn't like that at all. It was just a different environment. I guess I was... It was a different crowd than what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. But I I don't know. I guess just that whole vi- feeling of like, well, now I'm uncomfortable. Is it is it a cultural thing or is it just because there is a different crowd? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an interesting point. You can't you can't ever assume that you will or won't feel comfortable in a place. I think for the most part in general, right? Mm-hmm. You don't know what you're going to get. But that is a really great point though, and I think probably Probably the um, the comparison to the contrast that Dr. King was was um, working to make in the conversation that she was having, and that there is a lot about the world where it's not welcoming, and you don't necessarily know who you're going to be interacting with, and you don't know their beliefs, or you don't know what playing field you're working on. But when it comes to being in a church with people who are faith based, who espouse to live by a religion that's built upon love, you should know what you're getting. Yes, yes. And I think that as a person who goes to church myself, I get there. I mean, a lot of people are um, more judgmental of me. I don't know if you get this too. There's a discussion I had at work the other day where somebody was like, oh, Christians are the worst, you mm-hmm. know. It carries its its own set of baggage. Because yeah. for a religion that is based so much on love, the people that are always making a name for the religion <laughs> are typically very hateful and not as welcoming as you would want. Not necessarily the people that are making the name for it. I guess just the people Oftentimes that you always hear about. the stories that we hear about. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. which I think is with any sort of stereotype <clears throat> because people, if you're going to, you're going to find what you're looking for. So if you want to be anti-Christian, then you can look up all these horrible, hateful churches. Oh, yeah. And so in my own experiences with church, we've had people who at my church, I think is a very good one, very open. And there have been people who have left because it was almost like it was too loving, like it Mm -hmm. didn't hate enough people. And so they've gone to another church because they thought that some of the people at our church were sinful or Mm -hmm. like God is going to smite somebody out of sin adjacent. Mm -hmm. I always said it like, like if I don't agree with the other person (laughs) and you're near them, then. Did I tell you the story that our pastor told about people who left our church because we were working to become more diverse? No. Yeah. And that's funny that you talk about people leaving the church because a few weeks ago, our pastor was talking about some of the changes that the church has gone through over the, I don't know, 30 or years or so that they've been um, in the community. And there was a point at which they really felt like God was pushing them to become a more open, 
and welcoming church to lots of different people across many different ethnicities. And um, they're very proud of the fact that we have, I don't even know how many, like dozens of different countries around the world that are represented in the congregation. And where our church is located, we live very close to an apartment community that a significant portion of the residents are people of color and folks who are immigrants Mm -hmm. from Somalia. Some of the students from the nearby apartment community were were getting into the church during the day, and there really wasn't, they had to make a decision about whether or not they were going to decide to be a church that was welcoming and kept the doors open for these students, or whether they were going to lock the doors. And they made the decision that they were going to open the doors. They turned around, built a community center, and, you know, really created this open, welcoming environment for folks. There were a lot of different people who were coming into the youth group, and there were parents and members of the church who did not like that. They did not think it was okay. They felt uncomfortable with it and chose to leave because of it. Because it was more diverse? Yeah. That's they crazy. They felt as though they were bringing, they were, <laughs> they didn't, they were bringing people into the church and into the youth group that they didn't necessarily feel comfortable with and they couldn't handle it. So do you think it's because it didn't go with their stereotypes? Like, do you think that people, cause I feel like if something like, okay, we're going to open our doors as a church. Okay. Now there's this other group of people who are you know, maybe from a different culture, different Mm -hmm. environment from us, but they're still like coming in here and, you know, worshiping and celebrating and, and, um, you know, using our church in their own ways or Mm -hmm. whatever they need to do. But it's not the way, like, I thought I should be doing it this way, or I thought they, you know, I don't think they're respectful of my space. So now. I think it's, well, I guess I think it, a lot of it is, you know, the, the, uh, the flack that Jesus used to get. Jesus associated with the people who were lowlier. Jesus associated with all the people who society said you shouldn't associate with. Like, right? Do they realize that Jesus wasn't white? Like, do you think they noticed that? I, no, I don't think. Okay. I don't think most people. I mean, and I think that's kind of what you know Bernice is calling out in in the talk that she had. And I think that was the whole point of Rock City Church doing the series that they did and inviting that conversation to their church is that. This is not something that a lot of people are consciously thinking about. I mean, I don't think we'd be doing this podcast if it was. It's That's not. So, true. Yeah. Um, so, so no, I don't. I don't think it is. Okay, because I. I mean, I just. That's crazy to me. The, the fact that you would have an entire establishment built upon acceptance, it, like Jesus did, love people who were were he, like he liked the people who were sick. Yeah. You know, I mean, the lepers, people who were. Um, the sex workers, yeah. the prostitutes, prostitutes tax people, collectors, the tax collectors, um, um, all children of God. Yeah. And so the fact that they would be like, no, thank you. I'll just go ahead and I mean, right. but it's t- one, it's <laughs> one thing, to, but it's, I would argue that it's one thing to go to the food pantry and serve meals and to feel like you did your Christian duty. Um, it's another thing to have that person worshiping beside you in church on Sunday morning and being okay with it. You know, but like, are you really doing your Christian duty if you're keeping yourself separate like that? Like, look at me. I I can spoon. I can ladle out this meal for somebody. Look at me being like God. No. Uh, no. No. So I think that's really interesting. But I think that so people we agree want on to do that. that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I think that's like, but that's, and here's me saying something and I'm, I'm not bad mouthing a religion. So hear me through on this one. I mean, I always said that I, I love the idea of like, old school Catholicism mm-hmm. where like you could pay off your sins. Like, like okay, I've, got a big, I've got a big weekend planned. Here's a hundred bucks. <laughs> Catch you guys on Sunday. on Monday, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. 
Because that was, wasn't that the origin, original deal that made people mad? Was it like you could pay so much money to, or you had to put in so much money and then you could be forgiven of your sins? And I, uh, so I feel like that's what that is now. Like, look, I'm doing, you know, I might be doing things wrong during the week, but I went to the food kitchen and I don't have to stare this person in the eye or I don't have to, I don't have to have any sort of respect for another person, but I fed them mashed potatoes. Right. So here I am. But I think that's kind of Dr. King's point though, when she says, I invite you to get a little uncomfortable. So we are getting short on time here. So I want to kind of pull us back into some, some final closing thoughts, a few, a few other points, you know, the one from Dr. King's discussion, one quote that she, that she pulled out this whole idea of, of our connectedness. And, you know, as we said earlier, she invited the congregation to explore black culture to understand black culture. She also invited the, con- the congregation to into the discomfort of what it means to be part of a race living on the margins of society. And she made a point of calling out our connectedness as a society. And she quoted her father. She said, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. And what affects one indirectly affects all of us. And she said, you know, we, I can't be what I'm supposed to be until you are what you ought to be. And that, um, that really just, that, that's something that resonated very um, deeply with me, just that understanding or that realization that, you know, a lot of times we, we talk about the individual, the whole concept, or I call it a myth, the myth of American individuality. That we're just, you know, single individuals aspiring to something. But, you know, she really takes, pulls us back into this idea that we are truly connected. And that until we really come together and understand who we are as Americans, regardless of our race, that, you know, nobody's really going to be all that they could be. So as I mentioned earlier, Dr. King was, was really clear, really offered a lot of um, what I felt to be very action-oriented steps that we could take to love like we've never loved before and to actually make amends and and draw closer to one another as Americans and 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 bridge the divide the bridge the racial and cultural divides that we have but she made a really good point of saying that sorry is not going to do it that you know she's and she called out millennials millennials specifically are looking for that action saying sorry is one step acknowledging that but you know putting some action behind those words and really getting involved in the struggle is really taking it to that next step and there were a couple of things that she mentioned that I I wanted to make sure that we called out for folks who might not have a chance to listen to the full recording but she called out the fact that there is a legacy museum and a national memorial for peace and justice in Montgomery, Alabama. And they're both, I think they're right across the street from one another. She called that out as being an action that folks could take, you know, a very specific step that you could take towards understanding the history of racism. And I believe the peace and justice, the national, the national memorial for peace and justice is actually a memorial to lynching victims. Yes. So again, very specific piece of American history that, you know, a place where you can take action to understand that. And then the other thing she called out is just acknowledging the complicity that the church, the Christian church has had in racism. You know, one thing that I want to challenge folks to do is what conversations can you have if you're a Christian or, you know, within your, if you're a member of another um, spiritual practice, you know, what conversations can you have within your church groups? 
or within your your small groups, do you have is there an opportunity where you can you know organize an outreach effort or even connect with another church? So if you are in a predominantly white church, is there an opportunity for you to connect with a church that might be very different from yours? And again, create you know that that bridge of of understanding. And when I I think I talked previously about how I'd gone to a church, the church in Chicago, the Trinity UCC, and they had a lot of outreach opportunities. And they did a they had a very big prison outreach. I guess I I was really interested in what they did with that because there was so much um, involvement. And then I saw that Rock City Church at the beginning he kind of mentions how they had a bit of a, a prison outreach program as mm-hmm. well. And I think that's something that people often overlook, like. That'll have to be another topic too. With um, <laughs> incarceration, kind of our yes, mass incarceration. our our uh, mass incarceration, or even or even our views of people who are incarcerated, mm, or mm-hmm. the thoughts about you know criminals who are in the in the system. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and one other thing that she was really um, strong about was, and I think this is the whole point of her being in a church like Rock City Church, um, is that this. This is um, there. There is a place and there is a responsibility for um, white people, people who who are part of the dominant culture. There's a responsibility that our white allies have in moving things forward and creating equity and reconciliation within America. Okay, so we are definitely out of time for this week, but I think we really had another great conversation. We love openings for future conversations. Absolutely. And there's a ton from Dr. King's talk that we didn't even have a chance to discuss. So be sure to definitely check it out for yourself. It's available online, and we'll be sure to include a link to that talk um, in the show notes for this week. And I think don't, if you are feeling like you don't want to watch it because it's going to be too preachy, don't think of that. I thought that it was a very nice, like stick with it. I thought it was very nice presentation. Palatable for all. Yes. Yes. Very well, well said. Good. It was palatable for all. Awesome. That's a good point. All right. So, Rachel, thanks again for joining me. Thank you. And I look forward to talking with you again next week. Oh, for sure. Can't wait. Thank you for listening to Bound for Justice. Join us next week for another conversation about creating change in our lives and the communities we live in.